I am so happy to be chatting with the multi-talented Holly Mulcahy, soloist, concert master, and audience engagement partner of the Wichita Symphony Orchestra, and founder of the nonprofit Arts Capacity. Welcome to Pivot, the podcast that's dedicated to reversing audience decline through customer-centric innovation. I'm Ruth Hart. So welcome, Holly. So great to be chatting with you again. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you have been popping up uh, in my news feed for a while now, everywhere I look. And every time I see a piece of content from you, I just find myself resonating so deeply with what you're saying and doing in the world of orchestral music. Um, it, it aligns so perfectly with the work that I'm doing on rebuilding audiences and growing relevance for arts organizations. And I really think you are such a great example of an innovator who is creating impact in the world through your art by doing what I preach about all the time, centering the customer and the community. So I am just delighted to have you here today to dig into the philosophies behind your work and explore some of the creative ideas that you've been implementing. Can we start with um, with your work at Wichita Symphony? Um, I, I love, so you're a concert master and you're also, is it partner in audience? Partner in audience engagement, yes. What strikes me is that your work it doesn't end in the concert concert hall. Um, <laughs> you are cultivating quite a following on social media. Um, I think you have almost 5,000 friends on Facebook and 2,500 on Twitter. Um, but this is not an ego trip at all for you. This is, you know, you are actively creating bridges between potential ticket buyers in the world of classical music um, by making them feel welcome and included in the, in the conversation. And I think this is such important work. I mean, we know the data is showing us we aren't reaching new audiences um, fast enough to sustain long-term growth. And I think so often what we see in terms of advice around audience development is, okay, let's dig into retention and let's you know really hold on to our loyals so that we can survive. Um, and of course, yes, re retention is incredibly important and should always be a strategy, right, in our toolbox. But it's, you know, the data is telling us that it's really not enough. Um, and if we don't evolve, we're not going to be able to reverse this decline that we're seeing. So I love that you are creating relevance by building these bridges for new audiences. Um, and you, what's interesting is you are an insider. You're an, you're an artist. You've been steeped in this world for, for so many years. So I'm curious what prompted this approach for you? Um, that's going to take about five hours, but I'll give you the nutshell. I grew up in a non-musician family, so I empathetically think about my parents, how would they enjoy something like this? And I got like so much feedback from them through, you know, my first youth orchestra concerts all the way up to uh, they came to my latest performance in Flagstaff last week. And their questions and their thoughts are my barometer to general audiences. They would say things, I don't like this kind of music. I don't feel like I, don't, I understand. I don't feel like I'm really welcome to understand this. And it's not just my parents, it's a lot of people. Um, so getting to a concert master position allowed me the platform to really become um, more accessible for people to answer questions, to invite them in, to listen to the concerns, to hear their complaints um, and address some of their, their feelings. And that's kind of how I, how I started into that, that kind of philosophy. That is fascinating. It makes a lot of sense when you've got people in your life, they're saying directly to you, I don't fit in. I don't, I don't understand. So that's, that's really cool. Um, one of my favorite posts that I saw recently was, um, I think it was this summer, you invited 
potential audience members to join you after a concert at the local ice cream parlor. Um, and I remember you, you included photos of the shop, you shared directions, you talked about parking options, you even shared the list of flavors that were going to be available. Um, and it was incredible. It was, you were getting rid of any barriers that you could see, um, and you were making it as easy as possible for social connection to happen. Um, and and you really you're you're growing relevance and you're building community by enabling these moments of connection that just happen to be tied to orchestral music. What other things are you doing besides the sort of the ice cream parlor type scenario? What I've started at Wichita Symphony is um, trying to find space for a post-concert hang. Um, and so we're, we've got one coming up uh, next week after the Michael Doherty new violin concerto, Blue Electra. So there's a new restaurant downtown Wichita that would that has some really great chefs and a really great mixologist. And I thought we should have a custom cocktail called the Blue Electra. So I went to the cocktail creator and I said, can you do this? And then I played her sections of Michael's new piece. And she's her mind was blown. I could see it just kind of like, you know, going. But it allows for the telling of how this concerto is going to be perceived by somebody who's not really in, in our world. She's not a musician. She's she's a chef. She's a food geek. She's a mixologist. But hearing that music and transferring it into, into a, a, a cool drink helped tells a story. It's a drinkable metaphor. It's something similar that I did um, when I played the Higdon Violin Concerto down in Chattanooga, the executive director at the time said, I don't know if we can do Higdon. It might be too modern for our audiences. And so I said, I don't believe that. Let's create a drink that kind of describes the piece. It's edgy, it's fun, it's fresh. And, and that came up with a really cool cocktail. So we're just kind of repurposing that idea here in Wichita for a post-concert hang. I don't know what this cocktail is gonna look like yet, but I'm super excited to hear and taste what somebody's impression of Michael's pieces. And what that does is that builds a conversation um, where you can, after hearing a piece, you might not have a classical background or anything, say, yeah, that you know, it was really sharp, it was really bold, it was much like Amelia Earhart, which is the Blue Electra Plane, which is the piece that we're playing about. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a drinkable metaphor, but it, it creates um, conversation that's safe, where you, you know you've been to, many of us have been to uh, situations where people try to outdo each other with their, their knowledge and their kind of platform where like, oh, that Allegro in the fifth movement, that uh, retrograde inversion just blew my mind. Nobody wants to hear that, nobody. <laughs> And nobody's excited when you say something like that, but they're excited when you say this drink is really cool. It's interesting how somebody's impression of the third movement or, or the, when the plane goes down is captured in this cool drink, whatever the drink may be. So that's what's coming up. Um, I'm always trying to get really cool gatherings. In the spring, I don't know, we might do a bird watching trip just among uh, patrons of the Wichita Symphony, members of the Wichita Symphony. Let's just not talk about music and we might find ourselves talking about music, you know, just love building it. the friendships. It's exponential, actually. I love it. I mean, yeah, you're building relationships, but you're also creating these relevant doorways. Nina Simon always talks about creating relevant doorways into your world by drawing on things that people are familiar with, which I think is, exactly. is fantastic. Um, and do you find that that audience members show up and and are engaging? Yes, they do show up. Actually, our last um, our last uh, gathering 
we had over 150 people. We were expecting maybe 50. So um, it's growing exponentially. People are expecting to hang out afterwards and like, you know, just share their experiences. And it's usually done in such a welcoming way. And what we're aiming to do is, you know, not only invite the musicians along, invite board members, invite the staff and the audience. We want to mix people so that anybody can feel comfortable talking to anyone else mm -hmm. and using drinks and food as or any kind of activity as kind of like the medium helps that so people feel comfortable and welcome. I feel like you read an advanced copy of Mark Schaefer's new book, Belonging <laughs> to the Brand, because you're doing all the things that he's writing about. He says, you know, community is the next great marketing strategy. And, and it's, it's all about making sure that your community feels like they belong and it's and, and, and are getting to know each other um, as well as the organization. So it's all, I love it. <laughs> I think where, where I got that from, that community kind of feeling welcome is I have never really shared this publicly. I have a ridiculous collection of etiquette books from every decade for the past, I don't know, 150 years. And one of the central features of etiquette and the guide, like say, like Emily Post, is the concept of etiquette is making people feel welcome, like they belong. So giving them the um, the platform to feel welcome, the kind of like the guidelines, not saying that you must wear this and you must use this fork, but to feel welcome is the goal of etiquette. And so that's kind of been my, my baseline. That's awesome. So audience development is not just engaging audiences through social media and concert gatherings. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective as an orchestral musician, what are some other things that arts organizations need to be doing to reverse this downward trend that we're seeing in audiences? Do you have any other thoughts around that? that that's another like five hour topic kind of thing. Um, I think in general, we right now, we've just come off of a pandemic with all sorts of great ideas. We've, we all had like just huge thoughts while we were all shut down and now we're not doing them. Um, we had some really bold, adventurous things we were going to try and now the industry is trying to make money as it should. It's trying to sell tickets, but it's re reverting back to what is safe instead of listening to the audiences. And that's the most frustrating for, thing for me in, in this industry is we are not listening to our audiences. We bait them with biased questions to get answers we need to help direct us. Um, but it's hurting us in the long run. We need to really deeply listen. And by deeply is like keeping our mouths shut and just watching what are they buying? How are they buying? What are, what are they showing up with? Who are they showing up with? Are they not showing up because? Um, but when we ask them, why didn't you come to this concert or why won't you come to this concert? Accept their answer. <laughs> I think we just need to deeply listen. Mm -hmm. um, and like, my favorite word uh, is exponential. It's not going to be um, overnight if we just suddenly program this way, we're going to have, you know, 5% more audience or 10% more audience. It's talking to the neighbor, listening deeply and trying to just see, is that a pattern in, in that neighborhood or, you know, what can they offer to help us? You know, we, we all want this to go, but in this industry, most of us, in the industry are doing the talking and not listening. So important and so true. Um, and I I recently, ex I was looking at the word relevant because um, we use it so, it's such a buzzword that we use yeah, in this gross. industry, <laughs> right? 
And I, you know, I think it's my my background as an opera singer, you know, obsession with like words and meaning. So I, I went on a journey to, to, to discover the etymology behind the word. And it literally originally meant helpful. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what we have to start pivoting to is how can we as arts organizations actually be helpful to the people in our community. And that's when we become relevant. So that's exactly. That's um, you're doing a really fascinating project, the Rose of Sonora, which is a piece that you commissioned. I'm, I don't know the, the origin of that story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I'll give you the nutshell. Um, a few years ago, I would drive to Wyoming when I still had a car. And while I would drive, I would listen to about 20 hours of Western soundtracks because this, this is another reveal. I never really shared. That's my favorite kind of music is like Western film music. I'm not a big fan of the Western movie genre because it's so toxic male, <laughs> but um, I let my guard down while I was out at the summer festival, Grand Teton Music Festival. I was just um, very relaxed. And I said on Facebook, I said, wouldn't it be cool if there was a Wild West style violin concerto and I hit enter and I thought, oh, what have I done? <laughs> I've just revealed that I am not a serious classical musician. My career is basically over. And then within seconds from around the world, some really big names would hit liked and they said, this is a great idea. Um, you should you should pursue it. And I was like, yeah, it's a great idea. I'll, I'll pursue it. And I know film composers and I have a good friend, George S. Clinton, who's the film composer of like Austin Powers, Mortal Kombat, Wild Things, um, Red Shoe Diaries. And so he's very versatile. I said, hey, would you like to write a violin concerto in the style of a Wild West film? And he did, but all I was looking for was the sound, you know, just that that rugged sound, that open feeling of the West, because mm -hmm. I love that sound. But he did one up. He he came up with a story. Being a film composer, he needed a story to write, you know, a plot to. And he came up with a female outlaw, which is something that's missing in most Western movies. And he came up with five scenes, five movements, but he's calling them scenes. And it's, he starts each scene with a projector image over the um, orchestra or a narrator giving you the kind of the synopsis of the theme. So the opening is Rose rides quietly into the town, um, subdues the jailhouse guard and frees Jed from the cell. Together at last, they ride off with the saddlebags of gold. And so that kind of gives the audience the image. They don't know what my Rose looks like, but they've got their rose. They know the color of the horse. They know what Jed looks like. They know how heavy that bag of gold is. Um, and so it allows them immediately into the concerto and they have fun. It's just fun. But the fun part is after it's over, everybody can compare notes. And I get notes from audience, you know, after every concert like that. It sounded like a train here. It sounded like, you know, her screaming there. And so it's, it's very, relevant. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I can imagine for the outsiders, um, as I like to call them, the uninitiated, this is such a great stepping stone into the world of orchestral music. I mean, it's, um, I think I, I saw in one of your interviews, you said um, movie music was sort of your first in, interaction with music. And I think it's that's true for everybody. I mean, you know, movie music is what we're familiar with if, if we don't know classical music, we know that sort of orchestral movie movie sound. Um, and it, it seems like it's also 
an opportunity to sort of teach audiences how to listen to classical music because you're giving them a sort of story to have one, in their minds. One other thing that is cool about this that is different than most concertos is we have um, we've done this a number of times. George wrote a teaser, a three minute teaser, which can fit onto a pops program. We did a movie pops um, at South Bend Symphony and just snuck this on the program. Three minutes. Here's what's programmed for next year. It was a pops audience, but it sold out the classical concert the next year because people knew what they were getting into. And, and as most people kind of understand, the pops audience is here and the classical audience is here and they never mix. Mm -hmm. This time they did and it sold that concert out. So that is one thing that is different about this. It's just a three minute, you know, we hit a little bit of each movement in a nice kind of cohesive way, just like a movie trailer. Mm -hmm. That's genius, I love that. <laughs> and I think, it, I, I was looking at the website for Rosa Sonora and you, you've made it so easy for, um, orchestras to to implement this you've got you know the messaging they can use and all these different ideas what are some of the things that you you've seen orchestras do um around this piece this is the greatest um way that orchestras can individualize their their invitation into bringing people in some orchestras have invited their audience to come in their favorite western outfits and that is really fun um one orchestra did a gala gathering this was during covid out in their um, main street was shut down. They had a big barbecue table set up and everybody was like in a sheriff's outfit or outlaw outfit and they had like little swag and it was just fun. Um, some have, a lot of them have done like fundraiser barbecues. Barbecues are easy and it's a great gateway. People know what kind of food they're gonna get. It's usually kind of on the lower, you know, we're not talking like chicken um, divan or whatever. <laughs> it's easy, it's fun, it's simple, and it's so invitational to people. Um, those are just some of the fun the fun things that we've done. Um, some have done some really clever social media campaigns. Wichita Symphony did a great one with a black and white kind of noir kind of um, movie created about the prequel. Who knew? But, um, but they did that and it, and it came out great. So there's a lot of yes anding going on here. There's mm -hmm. a lot of material that you that orchestras have made to make their um, concerts very individualized and, and welcoming people in. And a lot of newcomers have been coming into this. That sounds like a lot of fun. I would imagine though, that there are some purists I, that you know would say, well, you're you're dumbing down, you know, the music or, you know, we don't wanna change. We wanna stick with the old classics. And I think, that's the thing about the arts world is change is so hard and there's so much resistance to it. Um, and I know you have some thoughts about that and, and some ideas, uh, you know, how do some of these innovators um, out there, um, how do they convince their organizations to, to try some of these new things to break out of that status quo? That's a huge question. Um, there's a number of ways and, and then it's, and it's not going to be like just one answer, but for instance, um, some of the older, uh, not older age-wise, but some of the more um, traditionalists, inviting them into discovering that it's okay to bring other people in, um, maybe for a newer piece, um, and make it their idea. That's a challenge, but it can be done. Make it your idea. And, and finding 
artfully a way to connect a new piece with a, a standard. Is there a connection? Allow that person to discover that because they've got their own biases, but if they discover some kind of a connection that can be used, they're going to be your biggest loud, you know, loudspeaker and inviting other people. You've got to hear this new piece. It's so relevant with that Mozart piece we paired it with. What I've been trying to do is ask people, you know, you, you love this industry, you love art, you love music, right? You want it to survive. Tastes are kind of changing a little bit. Um, be open-minded, invite your friends and, and, you know, invite everybody in. They might like that other thing that you don't like, and it's okay. We want this to continue. You know, art is a continual conversation. It's not just the same conversation looping. You know, it's gotta, it's gotta like kind of move on. But reminding people that if they love the art, it's constantly evolving and try to embrace that. Absolutely. We're on LinkedIn this morning. Timothy Myers made a comment. He said, Imagine if Beethoven had played it safe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing it safe is not gonna get us further down the road. Okay, let's talk about, we have a few more minutes. Let's talk about arts capacity. So this is an organization I, I think you founded in 2017, which brings music to prison inmates. Yes. Wow. Tell us all about that. Uh, it just started, I, you know, as a concert master, like I said, I've got a platform. Um, part of my outreach is to reach to people who don't get access to music regular, regularly. So I did an experiment. I brought in some, some Bach and some Higdon and some Mark Mellitz and um, various different types of people, uh, composers that are friends of mine. And I presented it all. And they, you know, I, I assumed that they would like Bach the most, but they loved the Higdon, they loved the Mellitz, they loved the Stevenson. And we started to collect data on why and how the live music experience was impacting them. And we also found out that, that, that their experiences were being kind of mirrored in the society outside. Outside was curious why Higdon was becoming the favorite, why the Mellitz was the favorite, why that over the Bach? Because outside is like the Bach is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But inside, an inmate heard Higdon and said, I felt my dead mother's presence. And that just, that blew my mind. But it also blew a lot of other people's minds. Like, well, maybe we should give Higdon another, you know, listen and, and try to listen more openly. Um, we have found that performing and uh, planning these recitals, we do maybe two or three a year, has given us the data to prove that um, people have better uh, social skills, their anxiety is down, they um, are connecting with their families. This gives them something to talk about with their families besides just kind of a one way, you know, how's it going, you know, to their kid and the kid can't really say, how's it going, dad? Dad can say, I heard a violin recital, you should check something out by, you know, Mark Mellitz or Jennifer Higdon. Um, we've had children start violin because our programs, you know, our little concert programs get mailed home. So we're getting a really good impact, but we're starting, well, we're not starting, we've collected the data for six years now about how music is impacting the, the incarcerated population. And I think it's really doing a good job. And, and I imagine the same impact it's having on the prison inmates is the impact it has on people out in the in the world too. I mean, absolutely, that's the power of music, right? Absolutely. Um, all right, so we are we're close to the end of our time here, and I want to pause and um, give our viewers the opportunity to weigh in. So, if you have any questions for Holly before we wrap up, 
go ahead and drop those in the chat. And I already, I did see some coming through as we were talking. Um, it looks like, uh, yeah, Bradley Powell was asking, you know, you talked about how we're reverting back instead of listening to the audiences. Do you have any thoughts about why that is and we're, why we're not sort of moving forward? Uh, we're feeling the pressure of, you know, being locked, not locked out, but, um, you know, shut down for essentially two years and we're starting to scramble. And what we know is Beethoven will sell out a concert. That's what we traditionally know instead of really listening to an audience where we might discover um, they might want, uh, you know, a choral work that by a, a lesser known composer, that might be what they really want. Um, we're not really opening up and asking audiences what they want in, in genuine ways. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I'm, it's, we're thinking ahead, to, you know, to the next season so quickly throughout the year. I think that's also a, a difficulty too. It's, it's like, when do we take the time to ask? Because we're already planning the next season. Yes. <laughs> there is a lot of pressure there. Bradley also asked, how are, do our systems promote um, or prohibit playing it safe? Then, what is it about the arts world where playing it safe is sort of like the the default? Uh, that's well, like I said, that's what our industry knows. We know, um, you know, and by the industry, I mean a small amount of people who have traditionally known the truths that we are kind of like sticking to where Beethoven sells concerts or Mozart, you've got to program this. You, it's the you should and you have to do this to get that is the, the kind of thing we need to like just step back from. There is a panic right now. I mean, I don't think it's outwardly happening, but it, I can sense it that people are starting to revert, revert back to what is safe, what is comfortable, what is known without really stepping back and taking a breath and like coming to some of those conclusions we came to during the, the shutdowns. We're not, as many of us are not doing those, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris Boardman, any, he's asking any thoughts about the resistance or acceptance of using the concert hall as a focus of community engagement? I wonder if he's asking about like alternative venues, perhaps he's um, well, I think if, if that's what that is, alternative venues are always an interesting way to um, break down barriers. I think, you know, there's the concert hall is such a great place. That's where usually traditionally the orchestra sounds the best. It's where we can do what we do efficiently. Um, if we can try to bring in other factors, like maybe have a cocktail hour afterwards. Uh, I think Seattle Symphony did something like that a few years ago where they would have a concert. And then like after the concert at 10 PM in the lobby, they'd have like some really avant-garde weird music, chamber music with some really cool cocktails. Why not do something like that? Now there are orchestras that are playing in airplane hangars. I think that's awesome. Um, there's other ones that are playing in car showrooms. So mixing up where people are playing parking garages, it's great. But what we have is an instrument is our music hall and trying to make people feel welcome in that is the biggest challenge. But I think that that presents us in the best way. Mm -hmm. um, and Trong Trin is asking for young artists and training. How can we equip ourselves to have the capacity and skills to create community? Um, what are some some of the essentials um, to learn how to do that? Uh, this, I think, I'm going to recommend a couple books. Um, to better equip ourselves uh, with the skills to create community, um, I highly recommend, and I feel like a broken record, but I believe in this so deeply, uh, Kelly Leonard of Second City 
uh, his book is called Yes And. It's about improvising. Yes And is kind of the antithesis of what we do in this industry. Um, when you say yes and, you acknowledge, let me give you a bad example. Um, hey, we should do a cocktail hour before our, uh, our concerts, including the conductor. We all know the conductor shouldn't be drinking before the concert, we think. Um, <laughs> how can we make that like a yes and instead of no because? Because no because shuts everything down. There's so many ideas and allowing community to be yes anded. Um, the administration, the musicians, it just kind of creates a community of, of a process, accepting an idea, listening, saying, I hear what you're saying, and maybe we can do this as well, just adding a one up. Gregory Hughes writes, you mentioned we ask our audience leading questions. Um, can you explain how that how to change and rephrase to get actual audience sentiment. I think, um, say so you, you wanna do a movie and orchestra kind of collaboration, um, orchestra with movie. Um, don't just you know say, let's do the sound of music. Um, I'm sure that's what our audience wants. Actually ask the audience, what kind of genre do you want? And then once you get that nailed down, maybe what kind of, um, out of these four kind of topics, what kind of movie sounds the easiest to you? Sounds like you would want to come in. Um, and I think that just another book to check out to, to get past that bias is um, The Art of Insubordination. And it talks a lot about people's biases and um, how we phrase a question. We have to be careful that it's not kind of like getting to our answers that we want. Like if we want to, program um, the Matrix movie, because it's a really cool movie mo movie music. Let's not try to say, hey, audience, we're going to do Matrix. We hope you like it. it. Let's just try to find out what the flavor of what the, the temperature of the audience is um, instead of trying to bait the question. All right. We're, we're a little bit beyond our ending point today. So um, I, I just, Holly, I love what you're doing in the world of classical music, and I can't wait to see what you come up with next. So <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been an honor. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find Holly on pretty much every social media platform. Holly, are you on TikTok yet? Or is that... I got on, then I got off. So <laughs> no, I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> so every other platform. She's also at hollymulcahy.com and artscapacity.org. And for more on growing relevance and turning consumer insights into ticket sales, you can check out my blog at cultureforhire.com. Thank you, Holly. Take care, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your week. If you want more actionable ideas for growing your audiences by centering the customer, subscribe to the blog at cultureforhire.com or follow me on your preferred social platform. Be sure to click follow so you don't miss the next podcast episode and help others find their way to this podcast by leaving a rating or a review.